Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at today. Revelation chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. And you know, as we get into it, I'm reminded of the movie The Sixth Sense. You guys remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? What's, what's the famous line from that movie? I see dead people, right? That, that's, the, that's the gig. There's this kid, and he goes to see this child psychologist, and his word to the child psychologist is, I see dead people. Now, it's only at the end of the movie. By the way, spoiler alert, and if you haven't seen the movie 15 years later, then I'm just going to ruin it for you. Um, but spoiler alert, the reason the kid sees dead people is because he's dead. And the reason that the child psychologist can see the kid is because he's dead, right? That's the whole big, you know, cliffhanger or plot twist at the very end of the movie. Well, here in Revelation chapter 3, we have the sixth sense of churches. We are going to be introduced to the church of Sardis, and their problem, Jesus says, is that they're dead. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church... In Sardis, write, these things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus here is speaking through the Apostle John. John was, was banished to the island of Patmos. This was Rome's equivalent of Alcatraz. John is there for, uh, for having faith in Christ and for, for preaching the gospel, and they're punishing him for it. And as he's on this island, Jesus meets him there, and he gives him a vision. And he says, this is a message that I have for the seven churches, and I want you to deliver this revelation of me to the churches. Now, those seven churches specifically are the churches of Ephesus, of Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And, and the context of, of Jesus' message, basically, is he's given an assessment of these churches. Now, this assessment has both a contemporary and a composite uh, meaning. In other words, the, the messages that Jesus has for these churches in a contemporary sense are for seven actual churches that existed during the Apostle Paul's life. During this time of, of revelation that John has given, it pertains to seven actual churches. And the churches are all there in the area of modern-day Turkey. But the messages are also uh, for us in a composite sense, in the sense that these churches are all composite pictures of the church today. And the church is made up of individuals, of you, of me, of us together. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has, has existed. And so Jesus making this assessment of his church and, and being able to say, these are the things that I see in this church. Well, we've seen that as he gives the assessments, typically they begin with a word of commendation and then they move to a word of correction. And so as we read through this, our exhortation is to say, hey, this is for, for us, the church, and we need to listen to what Jesus says to each one of these churches and, and, and say, okay, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, whatever it is, hey, what does Jesus have to say to them? And when he commends them for something, would, we, would he commend us for it? We need to take a walk with that and say, hey, Jesus is commending them, but would he commend me? 
Or, or would he rather, you know, correct me, have a word of correction in that area? By the same token, if Jesus has a word of correction for a church, I need to prayerfully ask, you need to prayerfully ask, is, is this something to where the Lord would correct me uh, as well? And so Jesus here, as he's addressing <coughs> the church of Sardis, he starts off and he has no word of commendation whatsoever. He goes straight to, listen, I got words, all I got for you is words of correction. Jesus begins with the sober assessment, the blunt assessment. He says, you know what? You're dead. Uh, As it turns out, you are the weekend at Bernie's version of church. That's who you are. You got a reputation that you're alive, but in fact, you are dead. Now, spiritually speaking, here's what's going on with Sardis. Sardis lived in the past. They were a church that had a past history, that had past accomplishments, um, that apparently at one time the Holy Spirit had moved and worked and had blessed and had done amazing things, and right now that season has passed. Now it's like a neutron bomb has gone off, spiritually speaking. And, you know, neutron bomb, it blows up, all the structures stay, all the people die. And that's what's going on with them. They still have all the systems and the structures and the policies and all of the interworking mechanics of this church. And from the outside, you would look at this and you would say, hey, man, looks good to me. But it's really dead. Elvis has left the building, man. The Spirit of God has departed. That's what's going on here. Now, it's like this in a modern equivalency or in in an illustration. You think about the sun. The sun is 93 million miles from Earth. And the light from the sun travels at 186,000 miles per second. Okay? And so when we look at the sun, the light from the sun takes about eight minutes to get here. So what that means is that the sun could blow up right now and we wouldn't know it for eight minutes. We would look at it and we'd say, it looks good to me. Spiritually speaking, this is what's going on with the church of Sardis. They got a brilliant past, and you look at it from a distance, and you think, man, nothing's changed, but really, they're dead. Now, this is where things get intensely personal for you and me, because you have to answer the question, take a walk with, as do I, what about me? Is the light that others see In our life, in your life, in my life, is the light that others see, is it just a reflection of a flame that once burned, but that now has gone out? And we're just living on the momentum. Our car, spiritually speaking, has run out of gas, and it's just a matter of time before this thing comes to an end. It's dead. And so we have to take a walk with that. Am I just going through the motions? Has the Holy Spirit's influence in my life dissipated? Is is my spiritual life weekend at Bernie's? That's what we got to ask. And so as we consider this, it's instructive for us to note two major contributors to Sardis' death that we can take a walk with and say, okay, is, are these things present in my life? We see it there in verse 2. Jesus continues, <coughs> Excuse me. And he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. 
Two major contributors to Sardis' death to see here. First one, they were not watchful. They were not watchful. Listen about this. Now, Sardis, their history. They're the capital of Lydia. They're located about 50 miles from the city of Ephesus. And Sardis was located at a juncture of five main roads. And so they were right there strategically located as a major place of trade. Not only that, but the way Sardis was situated... They were parked right next to the Pactolus River. And the Pactolus River, as it came through, the Sardis set up high on a hill, but the plains below that hill were well watered. And so they filled them up with sheep, and then the, the shearing of the sheep provided them an abundant resource. And so Sardis was the main place of textile um, and, and of, of you know, clothing and so on, clothing manufacturing. And so situated at a trade route, abundant, prosperous fields, sheep sheep and so on. And so they they made garments, they made carpet, and and they made a lot of money from that. Not only that, the the Pactolus River was filled with gold. And so they they got a bunch of gold out of the river. As a matter of fact, Sardis was the birthplace of modern money. And so being the birthplace of modern money, this was the first place where where coinage was actually invented. Coins were stamped and made. And so tons of gold and, and, and all. And so they're super wealthy, just ridiculously wealthy. <clears throat> and they were well known because they were so well off. They were known that they were, you know, for their luxury, for their softness, and they were basically apathetic and immoral. Why? Well, because they were just, they had nothing better to do. They were just the, lots of time on their hands, lots of money, lots of leisure. And so they got themselves into a lot of trouble. William Barclay, in his commentary, he says of Sardis, he says, Sardis was a city of decadence. The great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose living and notoriously pleasure and luxury loving. Not only were they this way because of their wealth, they were very secure financially, they were also very secure strategically from a, from a defensive standpoint. Sardis, the original city, was built up high on a, on a hill and on every side there were, there were almost unscalable rock cliffs. And so it was, it was very naturally defended. They grew so prosperous that they ended up having an upper city and a lower city. Lower city that they built down on the plain, the upper city that sat high on the hill. Uh, Sardis, the name, is actually a plural name, and it refers to two twin cities. But when things would get bad, when somebody would try and conquer them, everybody would run up to the upper city, they'd close the gates uh, behind the walls and all these steep cliffs, and and basically they, they were safe. Nobody could get up to them. And, and what happened was this actually led them to be very lazy and complacent and just totally rely on all of their natural defenses. And so they weren't diligent. And, and so what would happen then is, well, uh, King Cyrus came. This is according to the Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus, he, he wrote that, that King Cyrus came. He wanted to conquer Sardis, but they were, saw all the natural defenses. He's like, how do we get up to there? 
And so he told all his soldiers, he said, hey, if anybody can figure out a way to get up there, I'm going to reward him handsomely. So one soldier, he's like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm watching him like a hawk. Well, he sees this, this soldier from Sardis accidentally drop his helmet over the wall, and it goes falling down the cliff. And so he's watching that soldier, and he watches him take this secret path down the cliff, and he takes note of that path. Well, that night, they take a whole contingent of, of, guard, uh, of soldiers up the, the path that they watched the soldier walk down, and when they got to the city wall and the gate... There were no soldiers there. They'd all gone home to bed and they left the gate wide open because they just trusted in all their natural defenses. So what happens? They pour in and they destroy the city. Great spiritual picture, by the way, of you and me because we can get to the place to where we're lazy and where we're not defensive and, and we, just, we just sort of live our life in a way that doesn't recognize, as Peter warned, which we'll look at in a few minutes, Peter says, look, be, you, know, you need to watch out because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he's going to devour. And a lot of people are just fat, dumb, and happy and lazy, and we just sort of live our lives in such a way that the enemy just finds us completely unguarded. Something to take a walk with. Apparently, this is not only what happened to the city, this is what happened to the church. They, they lived their, their lives in such a way they were completely unguarded. By the way, the way that King Cyrus over, overcame and overtook the city, 200 years later, they made the same mistake. It's almost the exact same thing happened. People, the guys went up there, I think it was Antiochus who went up there to, to, just to attack them and found the place just completely abandoned, the post completely abandoned. Well, again, the church had, had, was the same way. This, so goes the city, so goes the church. They're compromising, they're decadent, they're sinfully indulgent, and, and they're, they're just comfortable and confident. And, and so because they're that way, they just live complacently. They don't live diligently in how they, they live out their faith. And, of course, the obvious application for us here today is, how are you doing? Do you live that way? Are you, do you have a life that is disciplined and cautious, Paul told the Ephesians, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Is that your life or are you complacent and not not living in that way? Something we really need to take a walk with. Jesus told a parable in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 13, known as the parable of the sower. And he basically said that the sower went out to sow, he scattered his seed, and some of it went on, on you know, the walkways and, and, and so on, and the birds just came down and snatched that right up. And then some of it fell on, on hard ground, stony ground, and, it, and the plants sprung up uh, right away, but they didn't really have any depth of soil, and the sun beat down on those plants and, and, and withered them and killed them. And then he said some of the seeds, they fell among thorny grounds. And in the thorny ground, what happened is they would take root and they would grow, but the thorns grew up as well, and the thorns choked out the seed, choked out the, the, the fruit of the seed, and made it unfruitful. And then he said, of course, some of the seed found good soil and produced an abundant harvest uh, and, you know, a hundredfold, you know. <clears throat> so Jesus, later on explaining 
this parable, this parable to, to his disciples. Parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So he's explaining this parable to his disciples and he says this. He says, Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And this is exactly what happened to Sardis exactly what happened to them. So we need to take a walk with this. Again, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he's going to devour. So we need to take a walk with this and say, look, am I being diligent? Am I being disciplined? Am I living a life of complacency, spiritually speaking? Or am I mindful of the fact that, man, the, I can, the, the, the fruitfulness of God's word planted in my heart can become choked out by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches, and so on. By the way, just a quick application for parents. Uh, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. That, that word state there, it means literally faces. Be diligent to know the faces of your flock. We need to not only take a walk with this personally, but we have to take a hard look at our children. We need to know them intimately. Um, become you know, so familiar with their faces. The, the full idea of that is that you know, our, 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 it is the thorns of this world choking out the word in their life and making them unfruitful. These are things we need to take a walk with. So two major contributors to Sardis' death. One is that they weren't watchful, as we've seen. Secondly, you're taking notes, you can write this down. Their works were incomplete. Now this is important. Their works were incomplete. Notice there in verse 2, Jesus says, I have not found your works perfect before God. All right, so come to Jesus' time. Whose works are ever going to be perfect to the one who is perfect? Right? I mean, are, are any of us ever going to be perfect? Well, gosh, the, the answer would seem to be no, right? So, so what on earth? I haven't found your works perfect before God. Well, good grief, we're all in trouble. Well, okay, same idea, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking to his disciples about their need to love others and so on. And, and he, he concludes the thought, he says this in Matthew 5, 48, put it on the screen. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, again, this is impossible for us. Ain't none of us perfect. Here's what Jesus was saying. Here's what he meant by that. Basically, what he's saying is, we need, you and me, we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. The Bible says that God gives his righteous standard in the form of the law to show us that we are lawbreakers and that we need a Savior to save us when we break the law. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. He is the, he's the only way that we can be made perfect. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And so what we need to understand is that every last one of us, when Jesus would look at our life, if he would say, look, I, I find your works to be incomplete. I find your works to, to be imperfect. Well, what he meant to the church of Sardis and what he would mean to you and I, and if, if he said that, was, look, you can't get there from here. You've got a form of religion, 
But that form of religion isn't going to save you. You are not trusting me by faith, and you, you have not let me occupy the throne of your heart. And this is a question that we need to ask and answer today, every last one of us. Sardis, they are a dead church. The light is shining, but it's a light of the past. Now they're completely dead. They're, you got a whole church right, that's filled with, not completely as we'll see, but it's predominantly characterized by a whole group of people that basically are all doing nice religious stuff. All the, all the mechanisms of the church are functioning. Hey, we got, we got a meals ministry. We got a children's ministry. We got an outreach ministry. We got a, we're doing this. We're doing that. But the Spirit of God wasn't in it. The Holy Spirit wasn't alive and well. The faith of the people wasn't in Jesus Christ. It was in their works. And we have to answer the question, does that typify my life? If I ask you the question today, how do you know that you are going to heaven? Listen, the only acceptable answer, and by the way, that's the answer, to, that, the, 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 answer or the, the question, the entrance exam to heaven is, is one answer. What did you do with Jesus? How, are you, how do you know you're going to heaven? It is either by Jesus Christ who loved me and gave his life for me and I'm trusting my life in him by faith, the one who died for me, his righteousness, not mine. Listen, that's the only acceptable answer. If your answer today is, how do you know you're going to heaven? And you say, I don't know. I hope my good works outweigh my bad works. I hope that, you know, I helped enough old ladies across the street. I hope that the fact that I'm not Charles Manson is what's going to get me into heaven. I hope I'm a, I'm a decent guy. I hope God, you know, grades on a curve. If, if your answer is that, the, the Bible makes it clear that you should expect nothing less than hell. Because our good works won't get us there. There is only one way that your works can be found perfect in the sight of God, and that's to trust in the one who is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And today, I would be remiss if I give this message from Jesus Christ, and I don't give you an invitation to respond to it. At the end of the message today, I will give you an invitation. The question is, where are you going to spend eternity? What's going to happen when you die? What happens if you leave here today and you meet a bus broadside and you're dead and you go stand before the Lord? Is he going to let you into heaven or not? And if you don't know the answer to that question, you can settle it today. You can settle it today and I'll give you that invitation when we're done. Their works were incomplete. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, what you're doing isn't perfect, Sardis. It's not complete because it doesn't include me. It doesn't have my Holy Spirit in the mix. This is why, by the way, back in verse 1, if you look, Jesus describes himself as he who has the seven spirits of God. What he's talking about here, seven being the number of perfection or completion, this is the complete spirit. He says, in me... You have the fullness of my Holy Spirit. We read in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, God gives a description of himself. And there he describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. These seven aspects of his Holy Spirit. And it's so, listen, it's so important that we get this. It's so important that we understand this. Because an ABC News poll, the most recent poll that I could find 
of all of America that asks the question, are you a Christian or not? According to this ABC News poll, 83% of Americans say that they're Christians. And you look at America and you look at everything that we're doing, and and I guarantee you 83% of the people are not Christians. And Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, look, when, when y'all check out, a bunch of y'all are going to, now this is a paraphrase, okay, but, but in the Greek, I think it basically reads like this. Jesus said, look, when you check out and y'all come stand before me, there's a bunch of y'all that are going to go, hey, God, hey, brother, how's it going, man? I did all this good stuff. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's Jesus' words. And by the way, in the Greek, and I know this for certain because my good friend Pastor Justin Alford told me this, that this, when Jesus says, I never knew you, in the Greek, what he says is, I never, ever, ever, certainly ever knew you. Does Jesus know you? That's what you got to answer today. Do I know the Lord and does he know me? When I go and stand before him, is he going to say, yeah, you went to church. Yeah, you did a bunch of stuff. Yeah, you threw some money in the plate. But you know what? I never knew you. In Hebrews chapter 3, it's interesting. The writer there of Hebrews is talking about the Israelites who died in the wilderness. And he basically says, you know, they're unable to enter God's rest in the promised land Because they didn't obey him by faith. And he carries the thought into chapter 4. And here's how he concludes the thought in chapter 4. Throw it on the screen. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have, here it is, fallen short of it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. It's been announced to you and me today, just as it was to the Israelites in the wilderness. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. Some of those that wandered in the wilderness went to the the promised land. Most did not. And the ones that did not, it's because they didn't share the faith of the ones who did. And here's how he finishes the thought in verse 11. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. The rest of faith, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Did you catch that? What he's saying is, look, like the Israelites, all of them all together, they're all wandering through the wilderness, all as a nation, all together, but they all don't go into the promised land. And what he's saying is just in the exact same way in our church today, We're all going along together. We're all moving along together. We're all worshiping the Lord. We're all studying his word. And yet there are some who will not enter into the promised land. Why? Because of lack of faith. Because your faith ultimately at the end of the day is not in Christ and him crucified. Your faith is in a religion. Your faith is in your works. Your faith is in something other than I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. End of story, period, exclamation point. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. So Jesus says here in verse 2, listen, be watchful. The idea is wake up. Wake up. And then he says this, he says, strengthen the things which remain. 
Now, this is an encouraging statement to me, and it should be to you. Because what he says is, look, y'all are dead. And you need to strengthen the things which remain. What that means is there's hope. There's hope. Years ago, when I was paramedic, we got dispatched to a, a traffic accident in Canyon Lake. It was on Canyon Lake Drive, uh, you know, that goes right through there, whatever it is. I can't even remember now, but it, was right, it goes right by the golf course. And there's a section of the road there, there that goes down a hill. And so we get there, and there's this car. This, this lady has gone off the hill. She crashed her car. She's got her granddaughter in the car with her. We pull the granddaughter out. She's fine. But the, the, but the lady's in there. Now, she's dead. And when we roll up on scene, the, the fire crew had gotten there before us. And this was, there was a bunch of fires going on at the time. And there was some coverage that a, a fire engine and a crew had actually come from San Bernardino. And were actually covering the area, a mutual aid. And so they got on scene first. And so they're there a few minutes before we get on scene. We come pulling up and they're all walking up the hill away from the car. They're like, forget it. She's dead. She's gone. She's dead. And I'm like, well, let's just see about that. So I go down, and, and I'm, you know, in charge, the, you know, medical instant commander, because I've, you know, I've got the highest medical authority there on scene, so I'll see if she's dead. I go down, and I assess her, yeah, she's pulseless, she's non-breathing, but, but there's, no, there's no criteria to pronounce her dead. We need to work her up. So I yell at this crew, I'm like, get down here, we got to extricate her, we got to work her up. And they start copping an attitude with me. They're like, oh, come on. One guy actually says to me, oh, there's nothing like beating a dead horse. We get this gal extricated. We started working her up. We got pulses back. We got a rhythm back. We got her transported to the hospital. Now, she died three days later. But the question that goes through my mind is, what if they had worked her up immediately when they got there? Because they lost several minutes with that gal. And clearly what happened was she didn't, you know, she didn't have, it wasn't traumatic injuries from the crash. She clearly had a medical incident that caused her to crash. And they should have pulled her out and worked her up immediately. And God knows, who knows what would have happened had they worked her up sooner. Here's the point. That God would say to you, look, there's hope today. And maybe you go, well, you know what, it's too late for me. Just forget it. It's like beating a dead horse. God would say, no, 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 you can strengthen what remains. Right now, you can strengthen what remains. And so here in verse 3, and Jesus tells us, look, here's how you strengthen what remains. He says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. There's three things Jesus says here that we need to do. He says, listen, it ain't too late for you. You've got to strengthen those things which remain. Here's how you do it. You remember, you hold fast, and you repent. And each one of these things is written in the continual present tense in the original language. In other words, it's, hey, be remembering. Continue, continually be remembering. Continually be holding fast. Continually be repenting. This is the exhortation. And notice also how Jesus phrases it. He says, remember how you have received and heard. In other words, what he's saying here is, listen, it's not just the exhortation that you've heard, but it's the example that you have seen. 
In other words, the idea here is this. What Jesus is saying is, look, Christianity isn't a profession and a prayer, and then you go on and you live any well, you jolly well please. You just live your life how you're going to live it. It's not the profession and a prayer, and now you've got your fire insurance, and you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a, con- a profession and a prayer and a repentance and allowing God to transform your life and to live obediently. Follow after the Lord. I'm not saying you're saved by your works. You're saved by the profession and by the prayer. But if you make that true profession and that true prayer, then you will be made into a new creation where the Holy Spirit now is present in your life and you've got a spiritual pulse to where the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, to where repentance and obedience are now starting to take place in your life. And so Jesus says, hey, remember how you've received and how you've heard. Remember the fact that those that have gone before you are actually living out their faith, putting feet on their faith. Jesus also says to hold fast. Be continually holding fast. The idea is that you safeguard, that you protect, that you, that you put, a, that you put a, a, a hedge of protection around you. I'll illustrate it this way. When my kids were very young, we took them to, the, to Niagara Falls. You ever been there? Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? So we're there, and there's a gate. There's a fence. And, I'm, I mean, we're talking feet from the edge of the falls. And the power is ridiculous. Like, you can feel it. And I, and I got, I got my, my little kids, they're climbing up on the fence. and everything. No, no, they are not climbing on the fence. They are, I mean, their hands might be deformed to this day. I'm holding them. I'm sca- I mean, it, it, it was almost not enjoyable watching this. That's the idea. Hold fast. You have to realize there's an enemy that wants you dead. And that's the, we're supposed to hang on, man, and watch out and be careful to watch every single step. Jesus says the last thing there, repent. You got to turn from those things that are drawing you away from Christ. Now listen, if that's you, you have to do it now. And there's two applications to this. The majority of you I recognize, you've made a profession of faith in Christ. You are walking with Christ as a child of God. Listen, be continually repenting applies to the Christian just as much as it does to to those that that are not saved. You have to to live a life to where you say, man, I've wandered. God, I need to repent and I need to get back on track. For some of you, for the majority of you, that's, that's that's the get today. That's the takeaway. That's the, there you go, there's your door prize. Walk out the door, take a walk with that, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. That's the thing for, for many of us to go, man, I, I'm not guarding, I'm not protecting, I'm not repenting. I need to do that. Have mercy on me, Lord. But listen, for some of you today, just as there were in first service, for some of you today, you have to take a walk with the fact that if you were to die today, you'd know that that you're not going to heaven. If you were to die today, you've got an uncertain future. For some of you today, listen, you need peace with God. You need to know that your sins are forgiven. You need to receive that cleansing. You need to receive that assurance. And listen, Jesus stands at the door of your heart today and he knocks. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to do it today. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 3. 
he, he warns. He said, look, if you're not going to wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. And you'll not know at what hour I come against you. Look, repentance, we are, you know, you, the, the thing about repentance is you never know when your time's up. God, Jesus is merciful. He's long-suffering. But look, you never know when your time is up. And he says, I'm going to come like a thief. Now, this is not a reference to the rapture. The Bible says that there's a day coming when, when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rapture his church. That is true. This is not a reference to that. What Jesus is saying here, he, he's talking about the sudden judgment that's going to come upon people who think that they're spiritually alive and who are dead. This is about sudden judgment with no prior warning. I'm going to come like a thief. Are you ready for that? So he continues and he says this, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. You know, in Sardis, if you wanted to go into church, they, had a, they, they wouldn't let people go in in their work clothes. You, you had to put on clean clothes to go in. This is a cultural thing. And so he's using that, Jesus, as he's speaking to this church, to, to, to say, look, um, there's some of y'all who aren't defiled. Now, we know it has nothing to do with, the, with our physical clothing. You know, it, 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 it doesn't matter. You come to church in flip-flops and, and, and cut-offs. You come to church in, in a three-piece suit. It, it doesn't matter you, you, your physical clothing. This is a metaphor. And Jesus is saying, look, this is where you guys are at, and you feel like you can't come and work clothes. And he says, okay, well, you know what? There's some of y'all that, that, you know, you haven't defiled your garments. And that's the way it always is. There's always a remnant. And he says... And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, they're not worthy in and of themselves. They're clothed in righteousness. Look what he goes on to say. He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, like 10 times in the book of Revelation, there's a reference to being clothed in white. And the fact of the matter is, is that you are not clothed in white. You're not, you're, you're not found to be righteous. You're not found to be worthy. He says there's a few that are, that are clothed in white, and they're worthy, but they're not worthy because of themselves. They're worthy because they've trusted in Jesus Christ. The Bible says your, your righteousness is, is as filthy rags to God. So your best day is not acceptable to God. He, he's saying there's a few people that are worthy because they've trusted in Christ. They're clothed in white. You know, the analogy is you pick up a piece of colored glass and you look through it and everything takes on that color. So if you look through a green bottle, everything's green. Brown bottle, everything's brown. Blue bottle, everything blue. God the Father looks at you through Jesus Christ and he sees you as pure and white and, and, and holy, none of the things that you are in and of yourself. But he sees you that way because you're hidden in Christ, if in fact you are. Now, what on earth do we make <clears throat> of, of his word here when he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white, and I will, here it is, not blot out his name from the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. And he says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is being said here? Well, first of all, what's the book of life? We see a picture of this in Luke 10. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. He says, hey, you know, you go, you go on out, you share the message. They go out, they come back, they're stoked. They're like, it was awesome, man. The spirits were subject to us, we're casting demons out and all this stuff. And Jesus tells them, look, 
don't be all stoked because you're, you're casting demons out. That ain't the big deal. He says, rather you be joyful because your names are written in heaven. He's talking about the book of life. So is what, what is being said here <coughs> is Jesus now here saying that your name can be blotted out of the book of life. Is he saying that you can, that you can lose your salvation? Answers no, you can't lose your salvation. Jesus said in John's gospel, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So he's not saying that you can lose your salvation. What is he saying when he talks about blotting your name, you shall not have your name blotted out of the book of life. Well, in Sardis, what would happen is the records of citizenship were in place, that everybody who lived in Sardis was a Roman citizen, if in fact they were, and they had their name written in the citizenship books. Now, if you did something that was deserving of a death penalty, you committed a crime, your, your sentence was death, they would haul you out into the public square. They would take the books, the registry of your citizenship, and they would blot your name out of the book, and then they would take your head off. And that's how it went down. And so, again, Jesus is giving a reference that they would understand. And basically, um, what, what would happen there is, is uh, he's saying, look, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to have, if in fact your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what is being said here is, look, if you're a child of God, this is never going to happen to you. Now, some people read this and their answer is to say, well, you know what? Everybody when they're born has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Every last person. Because God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So when, when the whole of humanity is born, their names are written in the Book of Life but then having lived their life, if they reject Jesus Christ, then it's the equivalent of being hauled into the city you know, courts and you've, you've been found guilty. Now your name is blotted out. Now your head is lopped off. That's actually not a bad definition, and that could, in fact, be true. But you have to hear the heart behind this, and the heart behind this is this. Jesus is saying, look, if you're mine, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And ain't nobody going to take that away from you. You can have the hope of heaven for eternity. Why? Listen, God doesn't write your name in the book of life in pencil. Your name is written in the book of life by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that can take that away. So what do we do with this as we come to a close? What do we, what do we make of this? How do we take a walk with this message to Sardis? Listen, it's twofold. Number one, <clears throat> some of us, need to recognize I'm a child of God, but I haven't been living like it, and I need to repent. But listen, others of us today, you need to hear Jesus' promise. He says, listen, if, if, if you're, if you're going to come to me and you're going to surrender to me, he says, I will confess your name before my Father. Jesus promised that if we will confess him before men, that he'll confess, him, he'll confess us before his Father in heaven. But if we will deny Jesus Christ before men, he will deny us before his father, before the angels. 
And today we need <clears throat> to understand, hey, that, that idea of confess, it means to honor. It means to speak as an introduction. And Jesus wants to introduce you to all of heaven today as child of God. 